This is the London Visited podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go to the Thames Tunnel. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we'd like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are so many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to patreon.com forward slash London Visited. Now to this week's podcast. The Thames Tunnel is a tunnel beneath the River Thames in London, connecting Rotherhide and Wapping. It measures 35 feet, 11 metres wide, by 20 feet, 6.1 metres high, and is 1,300 feet, 400 metres long, running at a depth of 75 feet, 23 metres, below the river surface, measured at high tide. It is the first tunnel known to have been constructed successfully underneath a navigable river. It was built between 1825 and 1843 by Mark Brunel and his son, Isambard, using the tunnelling shield newly invented by the elder Brunel and Thomas Colcrane. The tunnel was originally designed for horse-drawn carriages, but was mainly used by pedestrians and became a tourist attraction. In 1869, it was converted into a railway tunnel for use by the East London Line, which, since 2010, is part of the London Overground Railway Network under the ownership of TfL. At the start of the 19th century, there was a pressing need for a new land connection between the north and south banks of the Thames to link the expanding docks on each side of the river. The engineer, Ralph Dodd, tried, but failed, to build a new tunnel between Gravesend and Tilbury in 1799. Between 1805 and 1809, a group of Cornish miners, including Richard Tretherick, tried to dig a tunnel further upriver between Rotherhide and Wapping Limehouse, but failed because of the difficult conditions of the ground. The Cornish miners were used to hard rock and did not modify their methods for soft clay and the quicksand. This Thames Archway project was abandoned after the initial pilot tunnel, a driftway, flooded twice when 1,000 feet, 300 metres of a total of the 1,200 feet tunnel, had been dug. It only measured 2 to 3 feet by 5 feet and was intended as a drain for a larger tunnel for passenger use. The failure of the Thames Archway project led engineers to conclude that an underground tunnel is impracticable. The Anglo-French engineer Marc Brunel refused to accept this conclusion. In 1814, he proposed to Emperor Alexander I of Russia to build a tunnel under the River Neva in St. Petersburg. The scheme was turned down, a bridge was built instead, and Brunel continued to develop ideas for new methods of tunnelling. Brunel patented the tunnelling shield a revolutionary advance in tunnelling technology in January 1818. In 1823, Brunel produced a plan for a tunnel between Rotherhide and Wapping, which would be dug using his new shield. Financing was soon found from private investors, including the Duke of Wellington, and a Thames Tunnel Company was formed in 1824, the project beginning in February 1825. The first step was the construction of a large shaft on the south bank of Rotherhide, 150 metres back from the river bank. It was dug by assembling an iron ring, 50 feet in diameter, above the ground. A brick wall, 40 feet high and 3 feet thick, was built on top of this, with a powerful steam engine surmounted on it to drive the excavation's pumps. The whole apparatus was estimated to weigh 1,000 tons. The soil below the ring's sharp lower edge was removed manually by Brunel's workers. 
The whole shaft thus gradually sunk under its own weight, slicing through the soft ground, rather like an enormous pastry cutter. The shaft became stuck at one point during its sinking, as the pressure of the earth around it held it firmly in position. Extra weight was required to continue its descent. 50,000 bricks were added as temporary weights. It was realized that the problem was caused because the shaft's sides were parallel. Years later, when the whopping shaft was built, it was slightly wider at the bottom than the top. This non-cylindrical tapering design ensured it did not get stuck. By November 1825, the Rotherhide shaft was in place and tunneling work could begin. The tunneling shield, built at Henry Maudsley Lambeth Works and assembled in the Rotherhide shaft, was the key to Brunel's construction of the Thames Tunnel. The Illustrated London News described how it worked. The mode in which this great excavation was accomplished was by means of a powerful apparatus termed a shield, consisting of 12 great frames, lying close to each other like as many volumes on the shelf of a bookcase, and divided into three stages or stories, thus presenting 36 chambers of cells, each for one workman, and open to the rear but closed in the front, with movable boards. The front was placed against the earth to be removed, and the workman, having removed one board, excavated the earth behind it to the depth directed and placed the board against the new surface exposed. The board was then in advance of the cell, and was kept in place by props, and having thus proceeded with all the boards, each cell was advanced by two screws, one at its head and the other at its foot, which, resting against the finished brickwork and turned, impelled it forward into the vacant space. The other set of divisions then advanced. As the miners worked at one end of the cell, so the bricklayers formed at the other, the top, sides and bottom. Each of the 12 frames of the shield weighed over 7.1 tons. The key innovation of the tunneling shield was its support for the unlined ground in front and around it to reduce the risk of collapses. However, many workers, including Brunel himself, soon fell ill from the poor conditions caused by filthy sewage-laden water seeping through from the river above. This sewage gave off methane gas, which was ignited by the miners' oil lamps. When the resident engineer, John Armstrong, fell ill in April 1826, Mark's son Isambard Kingdom Brunel took over at the age of 20. Work was slow, progressing at only 1 to 8 feet per week. To earn income from the tunnel, the company directors allowed sightseers to view the shield in operation. They charged a shilling for the adventure, and an estimated 600 to 800 visitors took advantage of the opportunity every day. The excavation was hazardous. The tunnel flooded suddenly on the 18th of May 1827, after 549 feet had been dug. Isambard Kingdom Brunel lowered a diving bell from a boat to repair the hole at the bottom of the river, throwing bags filled with clay into the breach, into the tunnel's roof. Following the repairs and the drainage of the tunnel, he held a banquet inside it. The tunnel flooded again the following year, on the 12th of January 1828, in which six men died. Isambard was extremely lucky to survive this. The six men had made their way to the main stairwell, as the emergency exit was known to be locked. Isambard instead made for the locked exit. A contractor named Beamish heard him there and broke the door down, and an unconscious Isambard was pulled out and revived. He was sent to Brislington, near Bristol, to recuperate. There he heard about the competition to build what became the Clifton Suspension Bridge. In December 1834, Mark Brunel succeeded in raising enough money, including a loan of £247,000 from the Treasury, to continue construction. Starting in August 1835, the old rusted shield was dismantled and removed. By March 1836, the new shield, improved and heavier, was assembled in place and boring resumed. Impeded by further floods, the 23rd of August and the 3rd of November 1837, the 20th of March 1838, the 3rd of April 1840, 
fires and leaks of methane and hydrogen sulfide gas, the remainder of the tunnelling was completed in November 1841, after another five and a half years. The extensive delays and repeated flooding made the tunnel the butt of metropolitan humour. Good Monsoir Brunel, let misanthropy tell. That your work, half complete, is begun ill. Heed them not, bore away through gravel and clay. Nor doubt the success of your tunnel. That very mishap, when the Thames forced a gap and made it fit haunt for an otter, has proved that your scheme has no catchpenny dream. They can't say twill never hold water. James Smith, the Thames Tunnel, in Memoirs, Letters and Comic Miscellanies in Prose and Verse, from 1840. The Thames Tunnel was fitted out with lighting, roadways and spiral staircases during the 1841-1842. An engine house on the Rotherhide side, which now houses the Brunel Museum, was also constructed to house machinery for draining the tunnel. The tunnel was finally opened to the public on the 25th of March 1843. Although it was a triumph of civil engineering, the Thames Tunnel was not a financial success. It had cost £454,000 to dig and another £180,000 to fit it out, far exceeding its initial cost estimates. Proposals to extend the entrance to accommodate weird vehicles failed owing to the cost, and it was used by only pedestrians. It became a major tourist attraction, attracting about 2 million people a year, each paying a penny to pass through, and it became the subject of popular songs. The American traveller William Allen Drew commented that no one goes to London without visiting the tunnel, and described it as the eighth wonder of the world. When he saw it for himself in 1851, he pronounced himself somewhat disappointed in it, but still left a vivid description of its interior, which was more like an underground marketplace than a transport artery. Amongst the blocks of buildings in Wapping that separate the street from the river, we notice an octagonal edifice of marble. We enter by one of the several great doors and find ourselves in a rotunda of 50 feet diameter and the floor laid in mosaic work of blue and white marble. The walls are stuccoed, around which are stands for the sale of papers, pamphlets, books, confectioners, beer, etc. A sort of watch house stands on the side of the rotunda next to the river, in which is a fat publican or tax gatherer. Before him is a brass turnstile, through which you are permitted to pass on paying him a penny, and entering the door, you begin to descend the shaft by a flight of very long marble steps that descend to a wide platform, from which the next series of steps descends in an opposite direction. The walls of the shaft are circular, finished in stucco and hung with paintings of other curious objects. You halt a few moments on the first platform and listen to the notes of a huge organ that occupies a part of it, discoursing excellent music. You resume your downward journey till you reach the next story or marble platform where you find other objects of curiosity to engage your attention while you stop to rest. And thus you go down, down to the bottom of the shaft 80 feet, the walls meanwhile being studded with pictures, statues or figures in plaster, etc. Arrived at the bottom, you find yourself in a rotunda corresponding to that that you entered from the street, a round room with a marble floor 50 feet in diameter. There are alcoves near the walls in which all sorts of controversies to get your money, from Egyptian goods to fortune tellers and dancing monkeys. The room is lighted with gas and is brilliant. Now look into the Thames Tunnel before you. It consists of two beautiful arches extending to the opposite side of the river. These arches contain a roadstead, 14 feet wide and 22 feet high, and pathways for pedestrians 3 feet wide. The tunnel appears to be well ventilated as the air seemed neither damp nor close. The partition between these arches running the whole length of the tunnel is cut into traverse arches, leading through from one roadstead to the other. There may be 50 of them in all, 
and these are finished into fancy and toy shops in the richest manner, with polished marble counters, tapestry linings, gilded shelves, and mirrors that make everything appear double. Ladies in fashionable dresses and with smiling faces wait within and allow no gentleman to pass without giving him an opportunity to purchase some pretty thing to carry home as a remembrancer of the Thames Tunnel. The arches are lighted with gas burners and they make it as bright as the sun, and the avenues are always crowded with a throng of men, women and children examining the structure of the tunnel or inspecting the fancy wares, toys etc. Displayed by the arch-looking girls of these arches, it is impossible to pass through without purchasing some curiosity. Most of the articles are labelled Brought in the Thames Tunnel, a present from the Thames Tunnel. Other opinions of the tunnel were more negative. Some regarded it as a haunt of prostitutes and tunnel thieves who lurked under its arches and mugged passers-by. The American writer Nathaniel Hawthorne visited it a few years after Drew and wrote in 1855 that the tunnel consisted of an arched corridor of apparently interminable length, gloomily lit with jets of gas at regular intervals. There are people who spend their lives there, seldom or never, I presume, seeing any daylight, except perhaps a little in the morning. All along the extent of the corridor, in little alcoves, there are stalls of shops, kept principally by women, who, as you approach, are seen through the dusk offering for sale multifarious trumpery. So, as far as any present use is concerned, the tunnel is an entire failure. The tunnel was purchased in September 1865 at a cost of £800,000 by the East London Railway Company, a consortium of six mainline railways which sought to use the tunnel to provide rail links for goods and passengers between Wapping and later Liverpool Street and the South London Line. The tunnel's generous headroom, resulting from the architect's original intention of accommodating horse-drawn carriages, also provided a sufficient loading gauge for trains. The line's engineer was Sir John Hookshaw, who was also noted with W. H. Barlow for the major redesign and completion of Isambard Brunel's long-abandoned Clifton Suspension Bridge at Bristol, which was completed in 1864. The first train ran through the tunnel on the 7th of December 1869. In 1884, the tunnel's disused construction shaft to the north of the river was repurposed to serve as Wapping Station. The East London Railway was later absorbed into the London Underground, where it became the East London Line. It continued to be used for goods and services as late as 1962. During the underground days, the Thames Tunnel was the oldest underground piece of the Tube's infrastructure. It was planned to construct an intersection between the East London Line and the Jubilee Line extension at Canada Water Station. As construction will require the temporary closure of the East London Line, it was decided to take this opportunity to perform long-term maintenance on the tunnel. And so in 1995, the East London Line was closed to allow construction and maintenance to take place. The proposed repair method for the tunnel was to seal it against leaks by short crating with concrete, obliterating its original appearance, causing a controversy that led to a bitter conflict between London Underground, who wished to complete the work as quickly and cheaply as possible, and the architectural interests wishing to preserve the tunnel's appearance. The architectural interests won, with the Grade 2 listing of the tunnel on the 24th of March 1995, the day London Underground had scheduled to start the work of the long-term maintenance on the tunnel. Following an agreement to leave a short section at one end of the tunnel untreated and more sympathetic treatment of the rest of the tunnel, the work went ahead and the route reopened much later than originally anticipated, in 1998. The tunnel closed again from the 23rd of December 2007 to permit track laying and re-signalling for the East London Line extension. The extension work resulted in the tunnel becoming part of the new London Overground. After its reopening on the 27th of April 2010, it was used by mainline trains again. The construction of the Thames Tunnel showed 
that it was indeed possible to build underwater tunnels, despite the previous skepticism of many engineers. Several new underwater tunnels were built in the UK in the following decades. The Tower Subway in London, the Severn Tunnel under the River Severn, and the Mersey Rail Tunnel underneath the River Mersey. Brunel's tunneling shield was later refined, with James Henry Greathead playing a particularly important role in developing the technology. In 1991, the Thames Tunnel was designated as an International Historic Civil Engineering Landmark by the American Society of Civil Engineers and the Institution of Civil Engineers. In 1995, the tunnel was listed at Grade 2 in recognition of its architectural importance. Nearby in Rotherhide, Brunel's engine house, built to house drainage pumps, is open to visitors as the Brunel Museum. In the 1860s, when trains started running through the tunnel, the entrance shaft at Rotherhide was used for ventilation. The staircase was removed to reduce the risk of fire. In 2011, a concrete raft was built near the bottom of the shaft above the tracks when the tunnel was upgraded for the London Overground Network. This space, with walls blackened from smoke from steam trains, forms a part of the museum and functions at times as a concert venue and an occasional bar. A rooftop garden has been built on top of the shaft. In 2016, the entrance hall opened as an exhibition space, with the staircase providing access to the shaft for the first time in over 150 years. So, I hope you've enjoyed our look at the Thames Tunnel. And who would have known, just that small piece of tunnel would be the first piece of tunnel to go underneath water anywhere in the world. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, londonvisited.co.uk, or our social media. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you soon on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.